imposters and welcome back to the you're not qualified podcast my name is courtney heater i'm so glad you're here if this is the first episode you're listening to we've got a treat for you and if it's not the first episode thank you for your support and thank you for coming back it means the world happy hanukkah to those who celebrate we are right in the middle of it i know it's pretty darn early this year. Very, very happy Hanukkah to all of you. Today, we're talking about something that is near and dear to my heart, and that is coding, but with the caveat of coding without having the typical background to do so. Our guest today, Greg Bolmash, is a developer by trade, and he studied English in college, creative writing to be exact. So he was passed up for developer roles while he was trying to get into the industry. Now he is a thriving developer, currently on a break till February. So super stoked that he was free and willing to talk to me about a career when he's on a break from his career. We talk about learning to code when you feel like you don't have the resources to do so, Coder Dojo, free coding classes online, stand-up comedy, also understanding that just because you chose to do one thing for many, many years does not mean that you can't pivot and do something completely different. And he goes through exactly how to do that, especially if you're coming from a background that's nowhere related to coding. The world is changing and it's there for you if you want it, truly. If you are looking to break into the industry of coding, if you are looking to become a software developer, if you want to develop apps, if you want to understand coding to better serve your career path overall and maybe not have that as your exact career path because it's really transferably applicable, then this is absolutely the episode for you. Let's go. Computer. Activate the emergency command hologram. Today, we are chatting with Greg Bolmash. Greg founded and is leading the Seattle chapter for Coder Dojo, a volunteer-run organization that teaches kids to code for free. Greg is also a developer himself, but the catch is Greg has a creative writing degree and was told he just wasn't qualified for developer roles due to his chosen degree. So welcome, Greg, to the You're Not Qualified podcast, and thank you so much for being up for an interview during your precious break. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'd love to start with a version of the question, how are you not qualified? But in your case, I really want to know what is the typical background for a developer? And we'll just kick it off. Well, I think the uh, typical background for a developer in certain people's minds was always a computer science degree. But I have known a lot of great developers who never went the computer science route. Mm -hmm. And essentially, what's really changing now in in most of the industry is that even a degree isn't necessarily required. Even back then, when places like Google wouldn't talk to you without a computer science degree, and I had that experience, I had friends who had a bachelor's in philosophy or a bachelor's in electrical engineering who were working as developers and were very good at it. But they were not working for a place that was as narrow visioned as Google. Yeah, it is even for the product world. It's a lot like that. If you don't have a business degree, they won't even look at you. 
So for mm-hmm. some companies, and I think that's changing, but very slowly, the more that people come into it. So in software development in particular, I know that imposter syndrome is a really big problem. That feeling of I'm not good enough. And what I'm doing is not valuable because I don't have what it feels like the skills that I need, even though you are very qualified to do it. So people are reviewing your code. They're literally editing it, redlining it, and they might actually have more experience than you. So you could feel like you have a lot to prove. With imposter syndrome, it's usually been like, I'm always questioning, am I doing this in the best, most efficient, most elegant way because my my way of coding was just to put my head down and bang it against the wall until the wall broke we're picking up a distress call captain i would often have people say look at my code and go that's a clutch and i'd say but it works and you're like run it and it it runs it's fine and then there were certain things i would go into coding interviews and i wouldn't know the lingo because i was self-taught and i've always been a project-based learner so instead of learning this broad foundation, I would learn the things I needed to know to get the stuff I was working on done. Yes. So when you were teaching yourself, let's dive into that and loop in Coder Dojo as well. So mm-hmm. when did you know you wanted to learn to code? And when did Coder Dojo, it's so hard for me to say, Coder Dojo come into play? That was actually like a 20 plus year, 23 year adventure. Because I first knew that I wanted to code when I was 12, actually 11. Wow. Um, I started at this junior high that was a a school for gifted children. I mean, we had last names like Asimov and Sagan on the student (laughs) roster. And so we had a little tiny computer lab in the back of the history classroom in in what used to be a supply closet in 1980. And they had an Apple II Plus and some homebrew that one of the alumni had built out of uh, TTY. And I wrote that first Hello World and 10 Hello Greg, 20, go to 10, that kind of stuff. <laughs> and then my the math teacher, Mr. Morrow, offered an after-school programming class. And that just got me hooked. And actually, it's, it's sort of funny. Uh, Mr. Morrow is still alive and we're friends on Facebook. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm sure he's not. I think he just finally retired a couple of years ago. Oh my gosh. What is it with teachers and professors never retiring? Mm -hmm. (laughs) But that's a, that's a a really fun path. So you knew, were your parents supportive? Yeah, my parents were supportive. I got a Vic 20 for my bar mitzvah in 1981. And then that moved to a Commodore 64. And my dad even let me run a BBS on his fax line at night when I was in high school. But sometime around senior year of high school, freshman year of college, I decided I liked programming, but it wasn't what I wanted to do as a career. I wanted to be a writer. Mm-hmm. And that began freshman year of college. I swapped my C64, my actually a C128 for a Mac that had no programming tools that came with it. Mm-hmm. And I stopped programming with any level of seriousness for the next 20 something years. Wow. All right, guys, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and assume that maybe you also don't know what a lot of these machines are that that he's talking about here. So let's see. The TTY 
which Greg mentioned, stands for text telephone. So a TTY is a special device that lets people who are deaf, hard of hearing, or speech impaired use the telephone to communicate by allowing them to type messages back and forth to one another instead of talking and listening. I think I remember uh, TTY maybe being something called text messaging too, when like literally the flip phones just started text messaging. You had to press the number a bunch of times to get to the the right letter. But I could be wrong about that. Um, Okay, the Commodore VIC-20 that Greg mentioned is the 8-bit home computer that was sold by Commodore Business Machines. Uh, It doesn't look like I can find the exact year for that. Oh, released in 1981. Oh, and it sold for $300. Wow. Okay. And then the Commodore 64, which he got after the VIC-20, also known as the C-64, not to be confused with C-3PO. Sir, it's quite possible this asteroid is not entirely stable. Not entirely stable. I'm glad you're here to tell us these things. But C-64 or the CBM-64, is an 8-bit home computer introduced in January of 1982 by Commodore International. A little bit of a history there, and I kind of regret not asking Greg to explain all of this, because that might have been more fun. But here we are. All right, let's go back to it. Did you really love writing throughout? So would you say it's like a second passion of yours? I, I think it's, there There have been a few, I have a few different passions, and it's one of the way one of the reasons I got into developer evangelism and developer advocacy is because it is the kind of role that it allows me to satisfy all of these passions. Yeah. But back to your question, how I got to Coder Dojo, I followed this career, built up a writing career in my spare time. After I graduated college, I was temping at Disney Studios and Warner Brothers Studios. And then I went to work as a TV and VCR salesman at Circuit City. And while I was at Circuit City, I was trying to find ways to promote myself as a writer and build a following. And I found out about the World Wide Web, picked up a book, HTML for Dummies, and built my first website, which was essentially a blog before blogs existed. Um, But it was just HTML. There was no CGI code. There was no Perl and JavaScript back then. There wasn't JavaScript in 95, really. And so I, from there, that... Through a series of events, that website led to me eventually joining IMDb as its senior editor. And it was the writing part, not the coding or HTML part that did it. And that's what got me an Amazon employee number of 1959. Oh my gosh. Was that what year? 98. 98. Yeah. And it was in the early aughts where I was running the photo galleries and the photo a submission business unit for IMDb. And I got tired of waiting for developers to be available to me to create new features yeah, or to create tools to improve my productivity. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, Hey, I used to be a great little basic hacker as a kid. So I'll make it myself. <laughs> I'll, I'll just pick up a book on modern web program, modern programming and do it myself. How different was it from when the first time you- It was, so it took a little while. It was funny. Variables were still variables. Loops were still loops. Mm -hmm. And functions had replaced subroutines. 
Okay. okay. So instead of doing a go sub, I do a function call. And I, I actually picked up PHP because it reminded me the most of basic. Mm -hmm. Okay, so a little bit more learning together here. So a go sub is a close relative of go to. So basically, when a program reaches a go sub, the program executes the code beginning at the specified address label. So reading the code, reading the code, and it hits the go sub, and then it skips to the designated location, it looks like. Um, yeah, so we could just keep on learning together here. And then after my oldest was born, I left Amazon and started just coding my own websites and building database-driven stuff and everything. That didn't really pan out as a business, but it did lead to me getting my first developer job, which was a contract creating an intranet site at Microsoft. I was wondering if Microsoft would come in the picture. <laughs> yeah. And then so I bounced back and forth between contracts at Microsoft and elsewhere. And I finally started and I finally got a job as an SDE, not a web dev, not a TPM, but an SDE in 2011. Is that a software developer? Is that the acronym for that? Yes, okay. software development engineer. Okay. And um, I was actually working on revamping a whole bunch of stuff around the newsletters and subscription system for msnbc.com. And at that time, I started going to meetups, programming meetups. And I really just loved the dynamism of them and how that all worked. And when somebody started one that was meant for developers who lived out in the suburbs and didn't want to go into downtown all the time for a meetup uh, and then abandoned it, meetup would go, hey, the group you're in, the leaders abandoned it. Do you want to take it over before we kill it? I said, sure. And that was my first venture into creating a meetup or into running a meetup. And I did that for about six months and realized why a suburban developer meetup was a bad idea. Because okay. once they get home, they don't want to go back out. Oh, yeah. So we would get 35 signups and nine people showing. And so I started looking for something else that I could do. And at that time, my eight-year-old wanted to learn to code. And I had put him on Code Academy, and it was terrible back then. They had very poor quality control. They had actually updated their UI, but hadn't updated the courses. So the courses were telling you to press buttons that weren't there. frustrating the heck out of an eight-year-old. Oh, yeah. You know, could figure it out, but he, he didn't have that kind of background. And so I thought, hey, maybe I'll start a new meetup for parents who are trying to teach their kids to code. And when I went out to test the viability of that idea by pitching it at some various meetups, somebody turned me on to Coder Dojo. And so I'm like, oh, I would love to take my son to that. Where's the closest one? Mm, San Francisco, 800 miles to the south. <laughs> okay, what does it take to start one up? You just have to say, I'm starting a coder dojo and sign up and then just actually get, get things happening, actually have a meetup. So I worked on that and I got it launched and it uh, ran up until the Fire Nation attacked in 2020. Wow, that's how many years? Over 10. That was, so it was six and a half years about. Okay, six and a half. 
did your son come to that? My son came to that and enjoyed it for a little while and then got bored. And one of the things that we found out, myself and a number of the other volunteers, is that if you bring your kid and then you volunteer, your kid is a lot less interested because they're not getting the same support from you that the other kids are getting from their parents. I see. You're just too many things going on. Yeah. Too many things going on. At a certain point, I told volunteers, or the, like, I want to bring my kid and I want to volunteer. And I said, the best way you can volunteer is to be a champion for your child. If you want to help other people at the table you are sitting at with your child, great. But for your child's sake, focus on your kid. Yeah. Do parents that come in typically also not have developer backgrounds? Have they done any coding? Some of them have, some of them haven't. There's something that I found is a lot easier to be patient with somebody else's kid than yours because just it doesn't press the same buttons mm-hmm. and, and trigger the same insecurities. So it's we had a number of volunteers who ha- didn't have kids or a number who did but didn't bring them. And then there were the, some who did and brought their kids. And that's how we found out in the beginning that it, the kids of the volunteers were the least engaged. Yeah. That would really make sense. I've taught very non-formally to mm-hmm. children and versus, and I don't have child like a child, but my little sister, when I would try to help her with her homework, it was frustrating, but helping other children, it's much less frustrating. And I saw the same with my parents. Yeah. They were more friendly sometimes to my friends <laughs> because yeah, it's, it's just easier. Oh yeah. That's the, that's, I think every teenager has had the episode where one of their friends says, Oh my God, your mom is so cool. And you're like, have you met my mom? Oh yeah. I still say that. (laughs) (laughs) Like my partner's meeting my mom for the first time in a week for Thanksgiving. And I, he's, your mom sounds so nice because she bought him a Christmas present Mm -hmm. like last year. And I'm like, like, don't get ahead of yourself. (laughs) No, I love my mom. If she's, if she's listening Mm -hmm. to this, but anyways, so The kids then, are they typically put in Coder Dojo by their parents or do they actually show interest in coding themselves? Some of them are there because they bug their parents to bring them. I love that. Some of them are there because their parents said, you're going to do it. Mm -hmm. And it was very early on. We we had, in the beginning, we had two different classrooms. One was where we were teaching JavaScript for the older kids. And the other one was where we were teaching Scratch for the younger kids. And there was this kid whose dad was ushering him into the JavaScript room. He said, but dad, I want to learn Scratch. And his dad said to him, nobody's going to pay you to do Scratch. Oh, no. But how do you feel about that? My, the thing I say is, if I had not been exposed to programming as a kid, I wouldn't have had the confidence as an adult to pick it back up again. And for me... And this is what I tell the parents, this stuff moves too fast. Your 12-year-old, by the time they graduate college, will be looking at a much different programming paradigm than exists at now. So it doesn't matter what they learn so long as they learn the basic skills. And Scratch would teach them that. If you are looking for a place for your child to start for programming, Scratch is actually a really cool opportunity looking up scratch at scratch.mit.edu scratch is the world's largest coding community for children and a coding language with a simple visual interface that allows young people to create digital stories games animations so it's this whole free coding world 
where they go online and it looks like very interactive, a game type learning strategy that is super engaging. And it also has info for parents, info for educators. So it's a great place for you to also learn a little bit about it if you want to teach your kids or kids that you know if you don't have any of your own. All about the the very basic programmatic way of thinking, as Greg will talk a little bit about as well. Scratch would teach them programmatic thinking. I think they still might need to move up to a written language at some point, but Scratch would get them ready nowadays for any sort of the no-code, low-code programming stuff because they understand how to construct the, the right pieces and the right logic, at least. Do you think that's a foundational method that's uh, maybe prescribed? Learn basically the syntax and then build on it? I, I think it's learn the logic and then build on it because when I went in for that first contract at Microsoft, the manager had seen a website I built and he liked it a lot. He wanted something like that for his intranet site, which is why he called me in, even though I didn't have a formal background. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about it. And I said, I have never worked with ASP.net. I've never worked with C Sharp. Can we do it in PHP? And he checks around and he says, no, we can't. And he said, can you do C Sharp? And I said, a loop's a loop, a variable's a variable, and everything else is syntax. Mm-hmm. If I had a, a book and two weeks, I could ramp up. And he said, all right, I'll give you a book in two weeks. Did I mean that? <laughs> oh, I, I got the project out the door and did it in those languages. There was a lot of, as I said, banging my head against the wall until mm-hmm. the wall moved. I figured it out. I learned it on the fly and then promptly forgot it like high school Spanish. You have to, it's, it's a language. I feel like you have to practice it to really yeah. nail it in there. Yeah. So in terms of people turning you down for developer roles, what did that look like? And does that kind of stick with you in terms of when you're taking on new projects and going back to the imposter syndrome, maybe even where you're just like, I'm just afraid to dive in if they do accept me. And what happens if they don't accept you? What are the, what are those conversations like? The first time I went in for a programmer interview was probably shortly after that Microsoft contract. And Mm -hmm. they started going, you know, show me how you would execute this kind of sort. I'm like, I never learned those algorithms. I I learned how to write code. I didn't learn sorts and big O notation and all that sort of stuff. If you can explain the sort to me, I can tell you how to do it in code, but they were all already looking at me going, the funniest or worst one was a friend of mine was a programmer at Google and Google would say, oh, we're looking for programmers, submit your friends and we'll have a recruiter call. And so without me knowing he, he submitted me and Google recruiter calls me, says, Bob submitted you, says you're a great programmer, love to talk to you. Can you send me your resume? And so I send him my resume. And he calls back and he says, you have a degree in creative writing? So I can't do anything with you. No manager will even look at you without a degree in computer science. Uh, And that was 2010. So that was 11-ish years ago. Mm -hmm. And Google's attitude has changed. Although in my experience, their recruiting and candidate experience hasn't gotten any better. 
I actually just recently told a Google recruiter to go pound sand because I wasn't even going to talk to Google anymore. Aren't they also typically recruiting right out of college, acute computer science out of college? They're, they do, except there aren't enough people coming out of college to fill all the jobs. Yeah, I think that's a sign, Google, if anybody's listening. <laughs> All right, so listen, why don't you give me a call when you want to start taking things a little more seriously? But also that's for recruiting for junior programmers, for mid-level and senior, they've got to get them from within the industry. Yeah, that's very true. But Google has opened them up, themselves up to bootcamp graduates, Amazon, Microsoft, I believe. Microsoft, I think, even has an internship program. They now, do, a friend of mine did it. There has been a lot more acceptance in the last decade of non-traditional routes to coding than there was in the decade prior. And I, I'm so happy for that. I'm so happy for that. I feel like it's not a little too late. Sometimes I feel like it's, oh, why didn't they just grasp that in the beginning and just give everybody a chance, especially if you have skills that you can actually validate. But I'm glad that it's happening. But the it's not accessible enough still. There, there are always going to be barriers to entry for various sorts of technical roles. You have to be technical enough and you have to gain a certain amount of knowledge. While it doesn't require you to go through a four-year degree and take on five, six figures of debt to become a decent programmer, you still have to put in the work. Yeah. Yeah. And so graduates of boot camps will come to me and how do I get a job? Nobody's answering my resumes right now. I said, it's because you've just proved that you can spend 10 or 12 weeks programming. You haven't proved that you really like it and that you will stick with it. And so while you are job hunting, you need to keep coding. You need to keep increasing your skill level. And they're like, okay, what language should I learn next? And I'm like, take the languages that you learned and go deeper with them because it is they really want to know that you can master the logic and the requirements of a good program, not so much that you can do a hello world in 10 different languages. You know, what I, I learned to cuss in five languages when I was a teenager. Yeah, it probably it took time. <laughs> doesn't mean I can speak any of them. Yeah. Double clicking into this advice from Greg because it's a gold mine. So you maybe want to get into coding and you did a boot camp, but then you are running into barriers because companies are not looking at your resume or taking you seriously. And his advice to just keep coding and keep building is so good. So my recommendation is to, and Greg will talk about this in a little bit as well, figure out something that you really want to build like a website or really anything with Python that you're just, you're really interested in making happen and do it and keep working on it and keep developing the skill in that one language and uh, then show it on your resume, put it on GitHub and share that, but just keep on building on your skill and do not quit even though you're job searching. So you can maybe job search even for like six months, but if you're building in that six month time, seventh months comes and they see he's got this whole product or she's got this whole product outside of their coding boot camp that they've been working on in the interim. And it's amazing. And you really prove that one, you have the chops and two, you love it. And that is really a valuable asset to have. That journey then, how do you feel like your creative writing background 
helped you? It helped me in a number of ways because like when I was uh, SDE at Microsoft for that year at MSNBC for a year, I wasn't just writing backend code. I was doing a lot of front end stuff and that helped from when I was the art director of a college magazine or when I did the layout for another college magazine. Basically, a lot of things that I've done over time helped me do other things. As one of the PMs that I worked with said, you're probably the most personable programmer I've ever met. And, you know, I think that part of it is that it's always the creativity has allowed me to come up with interesting and novel ideas to show off my coding skills. So I've been able to build things that are impressive before you even get to the underlying code. Mm -hmm. The personable skills and like really just people skills in general is so underrated. It's, it, it means the world to me when I'm working with developers and product and I can actually form relationships with them. And that only helps drive product forward too. And then like outside, especially at like functions, you need to be able to identify with people and like work with them. So people skills, I feel like are just, they're underrated. And I would agree that sometimes there's programmers that don't seem to want to be around people at all. It's, it's interesting because I've known an SDM who had to take one of his reports aside and talk to him about the, the value of bathing regularly. Oh, no. <laughs> you got to work in an office with people. Yeah, other people were complaining about the smell. Oh, shit. That sucks. I hope he took it to heart and he... Yeah. Bought soap. <laughs> Gosh, that would be such a tough conversation. I'm glad I'm not a manager. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I personally believe that coding and software development has the power to do so much good in the world. Technology for so many things, right? Like, honestly, solving some of the, the world's biggest problem, hunger, water supply, conservation, how do you think coding can continue to improve the world? There, there are a number of things. The whole industrial, you know, we're like in industrial revolution 3.0. Yeah. And every major advance in the industrial revolution has been something that increased the productivity of human workers and has overall increased the quality of life across the board. Yeah. And yeah. It put the buggy whip makers out of, put them out of business, but it created new jobs. And I think that technology is both a very frightening and very promising thing because it's going to kill a lot of jobs in the next couple of decades, especially robotics and AI. But they're going to open up a whole new set of jobs that people are going to have to transition to. You know, I tell this story it was shortly after I, I launched the Seattle chapter of Coder Dojo and I was riding the bus into town to go to a meetup and we were caught in a really bad traffic jam. And there was this guy sitting near me on the bus who was actually in jail and was on a day release to work as a house painter. Hmm. And he was getting really nervous because the traffic was possibly going to make him late for check-in, which could cause him a lot of trouble. Yeah. And I saw this guy and I thought, you know what, in 10 years, 20 years, you'll be, you'll be replaced by drones. House painting will be something that a fleet of drones does in a few hours controlled by a drone specialist. That's so crazy to think about. And it occurred to me that house painting, ditch digging, fruit picking, driving. Checkouts at the grocery store. <laughs> 
that's because already on its way. All these things are going to be replaced by robots and computers. Mm-hmm. And we have to bring people up to the level of technological sophistication to be able to take on the new jobs that will be created. And, you know, when my kid got disinterested in Coder Dojo, that's one of the reasons I kept doing it because I wasn't trying to train the next group of junior programmers at Amazon or Microsoft. I was trying to train the next generation of tech savvy people who would have options in the workforce of the future. That's incredible. That was actually a big question is why should people learn to code? And that answers it right there. It's almost a survivability, but it's also because it can do so much good and it's a job opener and a really lucrative job opener. Yeah. And there's one other thing that I believe there's one really important skill in coding that translates to pretty much any other profession. And the, the, biggest art of coding is being able to take this big, scary problem and break it down into small, solvable units. And that applies to a ton of things in your life, not just writing code. It can apply to product development. It can apply to treating a disease. It can apply to writing a contract. I, being able to break problems down is a skill that everybody should learn. Yeah, even for the household, even for mm-hmm. arguments, like everything, just break well, it all down. Arguments are a whole nother thing because I have a friend, like I said, I have a few friends who graduated with degrees in philosophy and then went into other areas, but we have had discussions about logical fallacies and all <laughs> those things that happen in arguments that are straw men and appeals to authority and yeah. all sorts like that. I think in in the purest form, breaking down an argument into pieces is one thing, but a lot of people resort to shortcuts. Oh my gosh. I have a a personal rule to not get in an argument with philosophers. So (laughs) good on you. (laughs) I will always lose. I'm not that. I studied a little bit of philosophy. You have to for English, but it's just uh, not my thing. I think, what is it? I took four philosophy classes in college. I I think I took two, four. Wow. I took ethics, existentialism, metaphysics, and philosophy of language. Which one was your favorite? Do you remember? I think existentialism was my favorite because I liked the professor the best, and it was the most intellectually challenging at the time. I think that philosophy of language has provided more value for me over the years, though. Okay. Then somebody with an English degree like you, and they want to get started today in coding. We did mention that there's boot camps and there's definitely ways to get involved. But what would you recommend for somebody coming out of college now with an English degree or something that's really far from science or coding or math and they want to get into coding? What obstacles do you think they'll face? How should they overcome them? I think the great thing about the web and broadband is it has democratized the gaining of knowledge. Yes. And so you can go spend 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 at a boot camp and put in years of 12, 16 weeks and just get it over with. And if they want to do that's fine. Honestly, my suggestion is you, you really have to understand what kind of learner you are and then choose a path that helps you go in that direction. That's such good advice. Yep. Understand your how you learn. 
there are some people who not only are very good self-teachers, but that's the best way for them to learn. Give them the resources, let them dive in. And so for people who are like, who really need that guidance, who really need the availability of an instructor that they can go to like right away and get a defined answer quickly, they should go to the boot camps. For people who can deal with some instructor-led-ish kind of stuff, but then go for a, say, a community of learners and ask their questions and wait for somebody to answer them in a forum Mm -hmm. or search Google for their answers, I would recommend something like Node School or uh, Free Code Camp. Are those online? Yeah, those are online. They are free. Node School gets you the basics. Free Code Camp will literally get you certifications. Oh, wow. Okay. Free Code Camp has actually helped thousands and thousands of people uh, either get their first job as a developer or level up in their career as a developer. And in 2019, when I was on a certification kick and I was working at AWS as a technical writer, I actually got two, two AWS certifications and then the CodeCamp certification in microservices. I will be sure to list this in the show notes, but freecodecamp.org, that's free code, C-O-D-E, camp.org. So it's learn to code for free, coding courses for busy people. And it looks like it has all of the actual coding interface, possibly even, yeah, even within the actual website, which is awesome. You might not have to actually download anything, but definitely give it a shot. Oh, you can do it with Google or with GitHub um, and sign up there. I highly recommend that you do that. It's a great place to learn if you are wanting to get into it. So, you, you know, even though Scratch is geared towards children, maybe both of them. Give Scratch a try, see about learning the very fundamentals of it, of the programmatic thinking, and then set up uh, an account on Free Code Camp and get started there too. I think I saw that on your LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was that difficult to balance with your job at Amazon or did you have time at Amazon to work on that? Yeah. One of the things is that I, I would carve out my lunch hour. I would take lunch at my desk and use it for time to study. Wow. I would take my tablet to the gym in the morning and watch videos while I was on the treadmill. Oh my gosh. But yeah, one of the things is I used my personal days and vacations to cram uh, a day or two before I was going in to sit for the exam too. So there is, there's a precursor of really wanting to learn. You have to want to learn because then you will likely stay dedicated to it. Mm-hmm. So that's probably a necessary thing for the listeners. It's, if you want it, just you have to really want it. Yeah. And I think another thing is that there are people who are not very creative who need to be told everything they need to do. Yeah. And it's not a weakness that they're not creative. It's just they have other strengths. And then there are people who are creative who they get told everything they need to do and they're like, God, this is so constricting. I feel boxed in. And I talked about the people who need the handholding and the immediate feedback, the people who need a little handholding and delayed feedback. And then there are the people who don't want handholding, don't want feedback, don't want structure. They want to DIY it straight on. 
They want to, you know, look up answers, read articles, read books. And the most important thing is they're the kinds of people that this applies to, which is there's, there's an apocryphal story about a student who goes to a computer science professor and says, how do I learn Python? And the professor says, find a problem you want to solve and then solve it with Python. And then you'll be geared up. You'll be excited. Yeah. yeah. And so for me, with my learning of PHP, MySQL, all that stuff, JavaScript, Node, I've always had a project that I wanted to make. And then I went and learned the language so I could make it. I'm really curious about that dynamic because you probably have been doing this long enough where you can tell, especially in kids, what their learning style might be or what they're drifting towards. Is it difficult for communicating that back to their parents that might not understand what learning style their kid needs while in Coder Dojo? Well, the thing with Coder Dojo is the kids self-sorted. As we grew over time, we were able to offer more options. And so we had that independent study group. We had those small groups of kids learning, say, Unity. And then we had the kids who were working on JavaScript or were working on Scratch. And the interesting thing is that you would see the kids who did 90% of their work at home and the kids who did 90% of their work at Dojo. Oh, yeah. And so the kids who did 90% of their work at Dojo were the ones who either weren't motivated to learn on their own or weren't good at learning on their own. And the kids who did the majority of their work at home were the kids who came to Dojo for reinforcement to help them get over humps, but were really self-motivated and self-interested. Of the first group, do you think it was trending towards which side that they just weren't motivated to learn on their own or they didn't know how? I think it was a little bit of, there there are different reasons. Every kid's different. Mm -hmm. Some were just there because their parents made them. Yep. And they did the minimum that they needed to do to keep their parents off their back. And we've all been there. We've been, yeah, absolutely. There were some who were motivated. When I was a little kid, my mom tells this story about, I would never bring home any of my art from school. And my teacher would talk about the stuff that I created. And my mom was like, why don't you ever bring it home? And I, I was always like, it's not good enough. It doesn't look the way I want it to look. So you didn't want to share it with the world? I didn't want to share it. And that's the reason why I've been working on the same novel for 28 years. There are those kids who they don't want, they don't want to do it until they can do it. And so they need a little coaxing to help them get to where they want to be. And you need to be proactive with them because otherwise they'll sit there and they'll just beat up on themselves instead of asking for help. And then there are the kids who are the ones who, this is why we would say the parents need to be with them because the parents, even if they're not coders, some of these kids are afraid to raise their hand. They're afraid to draw attention to themselves. And so they need the parent there to raise a hand for them and get one of the mentors over to them. And then there are the kids, I'll change a name. Let's say the kid's name is Hezekiah. And he is, he's this kid who read program at 12 years old, was reading programming books for fun. Who, who owned a soldering iron. And his parents were not technical. They weren't dumb. They just weren't technical. Mm-hmm. And when they brought him to, to Coder Dojo, it just helped him blossom. Oh, that's so he found cool. found people he could talk to about the things he loved. And they understood. Yeah. And he has, there was a point where a number of the volunteers would tell me that he inspired them. 
good on the parents for bringing him in. Oh yeah. And he was one of the kids earlier on where I started focusing on, I'm not the greatest coder. I had much better coders doing the teaching. I was more of the organizer and conceptualizer and I would teach a couple of things. But one of the things I tried to do with the most involved students was help them expand their skill set into leadership and presentation. So I would get chances to teach and I would ask them to be area supervisors at our giant hour of code events. So Hezekiah there, when we were doing 300 kids at the Amazon meeting center for hour of code, there was no way that I could run all that by myself. I would divide the the area up into quadrants and each quadrant would have a leader who would run the volunteers in that quadrant. And when he was, I think 14, I put him as a quadrant leader. And I took one of my more trusted adult volunteers and I said, okay, you're reporting to him, but you are also his backup if anybody disrespects him. And one of the things that that we learned with Coder Dojo is never give them the answer. Ask them questions that help them figure it out for themselves. Lead them to it instead of pushing them to it. And this guy was very good at that. So I knew that he would not just come up and steamroll the kid. Mm-hmm. He would literally just sit back and watch. And if the kid had trouble, he would either take the person who gave him trouble aside, or he would talk to the kid and give him some advice. Depending on the situation. That's awesome Depending way to handle situation. it. And like one of the greatest pleasures of having done this for this many years is that I've been getting to write college recommendations for oh, some. Cool. Yeah. And it's got to feel so good. Talk about giving back. So what about those kids that come in and they are afraid to raise their hands, like you mentioned, or they really don't believe in themselves enough and even taking it home. They're afraid to do the homework. Like I experience this doing math homework. I'm afraid to do the homework because I feel like I'm not good at it. So I just don't want to do it, but you see a potential in them. How do you foster that? You have to set them up for success. Mm -hmm. You have to give them projects that they can get some easy wins on that aren't too easy. Right. So they still feel accomplished. Yeah. The other thing is one of the great things that happened when I was getting Seattle Coder Dojo started is I read this article, I think it was in the Atlantic and it was called the myth of I'm bad at math. Oh, actually I need to write that down. I need to find that. And so the idea in this article was that we are all technical. We are all engineers, we are all mathematicians, but at some point in our life, we have trouble and nobody helps us get over the hump. Or we see somebody our age who is so much better at it. And we build this narrative that the reason we had trouble, the reason they're better at it than we are is because we're bad at it. And we continue to reinforce this narrative throughout our life until it becomes part of who we believe we are. For me, listening to this was almost like a therapy session. It was like this was speaking exactly to me because when I was growing up and I was trying to learn these different things and I just wasn't naturally good at it and I saw other people excel, it made me feel like I was just never going to be good at it and it, it literally, I couldn't touch it. It wasn't for me. I needed to move on and not think of it anymore. I didn't think of it anymore because it made me feel bad about myself. 
realizing now that it's just not the case. And sometimes you just have to work a little harder at it, but you absolutely have the capability to do it. And now I know that about myself. And I'm so glad that Greg is hammering in here because Jesus, so it's so true. If you found yourself struggling there too, I really encourage you to just rewind this little bit and re-listen to that piece from Greg about just the kind of the psychology behind it and why we think this and why it's not reality. It might be our reality, but it's really not reality. And I encourage you to just do it. And I was really lucky to have a friend in high school who was the dumb jock who got a master's in psychology. And I saw Chris struggling, but he struggled. Yeah. He didn't give up. He just put his head down until he figured it out and got through it. And he kept doing that. And he, as I said, got a master's in psychology. So we have to teach the kids that if you just keep working on it, everything is solvable if you keep working on it and getting help. And so it's not that you're, because like kids and see Hezekiah, who at 12 was almost as good a programmer as some of our low-end volunteers. Yeah, devouring it. Yeah. Yeah. And they would say, I'm not as good as him. I must be bad at it. And we were like, no, the reason he's this good is because he loves it and he eats, drinks and sleeps it. And you can be good at it too. You just have to practice. He practices because he really wants to and because he really enjoys it. Some people have to practice even if they don't enjoy it to get to the point where it either becomes easier or enjoyable. And that's where your advice comes in to find a problem you want to solve and solve it through the language you want to learn. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But, but it's also funny because like when I was learning databases, mm-hmm. I gave myself a challenge to write a database driven website in 24 hours. And I had to ideate and create and publish this website. And I created an online insult database. Insult? Yeah, insult. I presume you've prepared new insults for today. And I created mechanisms for people to submit insults, very rudimentary administrator interface for me to review them and either edit or approve them. And then, of course, uh, a menuing system that could go through the categories and make a a menu for people to browse through. (laughs) Develop your own insults. And at one point, as far as I know, I had the number one SERP on Google for dirty insults. Is but it that, still also, that also caused Google AdSense to say, you have to take all our ads off your site. <laughs> and when it stopped making money, it was only making like two bucks a month. But when it stopped making any money, I was just like, yeah, I'll take it down. Okay. <laughs> Bummer. That would have been fun to see. But that must have been really fun. And then you had the, the goal of doing it in 24 hours. So it's Okay. You need to be structured about it. You need to figure out your game plan. You need to build it. And Mm -hmm. that's such good advice. Just block off 24 hours and figure out a problem. Yeah. And, but there were other sites that I took a lot longer to build and I learned from my mistakes on them as well. The funniest thing is that year that I was an SDE at MSNBC, I was working in PHP Mm -hmm. because Microsoft slash MSNBC had bought a company that was handling Um, all their user database and all their internal advertising and their internal blog with the PHP-based systems. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, are you familiar with the concept of away teams at Amazon? 
No, I've not heard of it. So away teams at Amazon are to keep you from being bottlenecked by somebody else's inavailability to implement the features you need in their code. You can bring in your own team into their code base and implement those features. Oh my God. And away team. And the team that owns that code is the host team. That's actually an amazing concept. That's unblocking. I love that. Yeah. Unfortunately, it, one of the projects that I worked on while at Amazon was a, a way to keep uh, host teams and away teams from being at each other's throats. Was you know working on best practices and ways for them to support each other better and annoy each other less. But that job at Microsoft was basically being an away team of one in this subsidiary's code base because this PM and his team were like, we need to do all this stuff with our newsletters. And the subsidiary was like, we don't have time for that. Get your own coder. We'll give them access to the code base. And so it was really weird. I've never worked on a development team. I have always been a solo developer, even when I've been working for big companies. I'm sure that you did fine because you have such good people skills. Do you feel like you did? Okay. How did that feel? Oh, I I did fine. It's just been interesting because there are dynamics to a development team Mm -hmm. and breaking down these problems and assigning them out that I've never actually been through with a larger team. Yeah. The away team. God, that's such a good idea. I feel like I've been on like five different teams that that would have been so beneficial because the blocking is just some people just don't have time or resources to get their project done. And it's a really important one. So that's a good, really good concept. In terms of now, how would you say you're qualified to be doing what you're doing? I think I said earlier on that what I found developer relations, developer advocacy, developer evangelism really satisfies all the different parts of me. So it satisfies the part of me that dropped out of college and did stand up because I get to get up on stage. (laughs) We need to talk about that. That's great. And I I get to get up on stage. I get to incorporate humor Mm -hmm. into my presentations. It satisfies the creative writing part of me because I write a lot of blogs and articles and even technical stuff where I'm able to bring a level of creativity and sophistication to it that sort of stands out from your average technical writing. It makes it less dry. And then, of course, the coding where I'm able to create the wow demos, the sample code, the walkthroughs, the tutorials, and I'm able to write code that's that's good for those. On the other hand, I also feel like getting into this has taken me away from building complex stuff. There are always trade-offs. That kind of is a segue into the last question I have now with a stand-up. <laughs> Two more questions. So are you wanting to get back into that? What's your next step? I know that you're going to be searching for a job, but even hobby-wise, what do you want to do with coding next? Uh, I'm on a, I'm just finishing up the first week of a three-month break yeah. that I gave myself because I, I was working, I wasn't taking vacation, and I finally just hit a wall and I wasn't good to any for anybody. I'm working on my novel and I've got a pledge to myself that within the next couple of weeks, I'm going to iron out the few kinks that are left and get it up on Amazon. Oh, man, that's amazing. 23 years you said in the making. Let's go. Well, 28 years in the 28. making. 28. Oh my gosh. I'm excited. Congratulations. I started it in 94. Wow. What's, is it science fiction? I'm just taking uh, a step. It's, it's supernatural fantasy. It actually follows a few 
mortal characters through a journey through the afterlife that sort of tracks Dante's journey. Oh, I love that. Amazing. They have their own motivations. Can you Uh, share the title so I can look it up when it comes out? Yeah, it's called Hell on $5 a Day. Love that title. Okay. Okay, so that's next. That's exciting. Congratulations on the book. That's no easy feat. So it's technically done, but there are a few scenes where I felt that I took easy ways out, but I need to go back and and do them right. Mm -hmm. And then it's just tightening up the writing overall. And coming back with refreshed energy, I think it's going to make so much of a difference, right? You're, you have a clear headspace. Yeah. So we'll see. I'll put it out there and do my best to market it and see what happens. But really beyond that, I, I, there are, I've never had time to really dig into things that didn't directly impact what I was working on at work. I never had a chance to get into React. I never had a chance to get into TypeScript. And React's Um, a big one now. Yeah. React's a big one. So I want to, I want to dive in and chew on React a bit more, dive in and chew on TypeScript a bit more, maybe do another free code camp certification, possibly in security or in uh, big data and just expand my knowledge base. And also I, I, I understand the overarching concepts behind blockchain, but I wouldn't mind getting a little deeper on it. Love it. You have a full schedule. Where can people find you and your standup? Do you still? No, I, I see. This is the interesting thing. I quit standup to go get my degree in creative writing. Oh. And it was because I God. So there's this comedian, Larry Beezer, if I'm remembering the name right. And in 1983, I saw him on A&E's An Evening at the Improv doing a joke. And in 1989, I saw him on Comic Strip Live on Fox doing the same joke. I would have MCs at various comedy clubs say, why didn't you do the joke you did last week? And I'd be like, because that was last week's joke. (laughs) Maybe he only rolls them over every five years. I found that if you do stand up, you do the same joke over and over and over again. And I was willing to do that until I had it perfected. But once I had it perfected, it just went in the file. And so... I realized that I liked the writing more than I liked the performing. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. You seem like you also like to make people laugh. So is that kind of a component? I just did last week my my presentation for DevRelCon Developer Relations Conference was on how to use humor in your talks and presentations. You're still incorporating it a little bit then. That's great. Oh, yeah. In that, it was like a 15-minute set. That's just, that's very funny to me. <laughs> Y'all ain't laughing though. Where can people find you if they even want to get involved with Coder Dojo, if they want to get in touch with you? If they want to get involved with Coder Dojo, they should go to the Coder Dojo website. Okay. Um, because that's all over the world and they might not be here in Seattle. And in Seattle, I'm hoping we can get meetups restarted next year because I have a ton of stuff. I created like a whole thing with badges and stickers and a cheap lanyards and and these badges had like little hexagons on them that you would fill with the stickers. And I was going to debut them the day we called it off because of COVID. Ah, heck. Now they're ready. 
<laughs> yeah, they're, they've been just sitting there. I'm hoping to get that going next year. So if they want to express interest, they can connect with me through the seattlecoderdojo.com website. My website is Let My People Code. <laughs> uh, my handle on Twitter is Let My People Code. My handle on Discord is Let My People Code 04, hashtag 0412. My GitHub is Let My People Code. So you can find me. Yeah, I was actually going to ask about GitHub in particular because it, it reminded me when you were talking about having just a portfolio and continuing to work on your coding, no matter what's going on in your life, even if you don't have a job, just make a GitHub, keep your stuff. Yeah, definitely publish your stuff on GitHub. Let other people see it. Also, if you're doing Node, I love Glitch. Oh, wow. Okay. It's a great, you can get like a free small instance Node server where you can just build something out and let people see, put it on the web in working function, but you can also let people fork it and try it and see how it works under the hood. Okay, Greg, I won't take up any more of your time, but was there anything else that you really wanted to say that we didn't touch on before we say our goodbyes? I just want to recommend Free Code Camp one more time because I'm okay. a really big supporter of it. I've actually donated money. I've done one of their certifications and we would also help our teens get through their basic web dev certification. And if you are good at sort of making yourself sit down and work on things on a regular basis, it's a great way for you to get up to speed on coding. And shout out to Quincy Larson, who started it. He's an amazing person. Thank you so much for your time, Greg. And truly, I hope that you have the most relaxing three months off. Good luck on your book. I'm actually really excited about that book. All right. Thank you, Courtney. Thanks, Greg. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. What an inspiring person Greg is. There was just so much value in that conversation, and I want to really hone in on these aspects. So please remember, always keep coding, even when job searching after boot camp. Find something you are passionate about and build something around that, especially if you are still determining if coding is something that you will enjoy long term, if you're just not sure yet. Learn to code for free on Free Code Camp. Don't discount your current qualifications. And I am starting to sense a trend here with transferable skills. Growth isn't linear. You might take a break for 20 years and want to dive back into an old passion and even make money doing it. Just don't take no for an answer. Utilize Greg's advice and do the thing. According to condescosoftware.com, over the next 10 years, there will be 1.4 million coding jobs to fill in the U.S. alone, with 67% of those jobs outside the technology industry. So guess what that means? Your current skills will only serve you, and growth in that industry can lead you in so many different directions. So this is not a cookie-cutter career path. Just remember that. I've added where to find Greg in the show notes. If you want to get in touch with me, if you have any questions or someone you think would be a great fit for this show, is it you, perhaps? Please reach out, ynqpod at gmail.com. That's Y-N as in Nancy, qpod at gmail.com. And if you've been waiting for trivia, here it is. Ada Lovelace was the world's first computer programmer. 
1843, she published an article about the analytical engine. She translated it from French, adding in her own extensive notes, which came to be recognized as the first algorithm intended to be processed by a machine. Go be like Ada. Pioneer the shit out of coding. See you next week, friends. Bye.